0: You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll look at the wildfires blanketing the Bay Area in smoky darkness as an effect of climate change.
1: It's easy to assume that we've entered a new normal now and that we maybe have some kind of sense of what these fires will be like. It's going to be like Reading. It'll be like paradise. It'll be like the fires that we're encountering this year. But I remember another, something that's always stuck with me, Is some other fire scientists I spoke to said, this is not the new normal Because that's assuming that the system has reached some kind of point of stability. And in fact, all we know right now is that the system is growing more and more unstable because of the way that we are altering the climate with carbon emissions.
0: I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic.
1: Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation,
0: which has been acting as
1: a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org.
0: Some two dozen wildfires are burning around the state. As the Bay Area woke up today to a very eerie, artificial, smoky twilight, we thought we should talk about a major factor in the ever-increasing severity of these wildfires climate change. While fires are a natural occurrence in California, fire season has been steadily expanding, and the fires are getting more and more ferocious over the years. To talk more about this, we've brought back Alistair G. He's an editor at The Guardian and co-author with Danny Anguiano of the book Fire in Paradise, an American Tragedy. He and Danny have been on the program before to talk about their book, which paints a portrait of the 2018 campfire and how it destroyed the town of Paradise. The reporters document what happened before, during, and after the fire and how the town prepared, but they also zoom out and offer some perspective on how climate change is driving these ever more destructive fires. Alistair and I got into that in more detail earlier today. So you and your, co-auth- your co-author, uh, Danny Angiano co-wrote a piece in late August about this wildfire and climate crisis. You wrote, there's an idea that when the climate crisis begins, we will know it. Movies presented as a moment when the world's weather suddenly turns apocalyptic. Winds howl, sea levels surge, capital cities are decimated. Well, the Bay Area woke up this morning to near darkness because of the smoke coverage. And so far, do you see around you people taking this as that moment when things turn apocalyptic? Or are we pushing that idea away?
1: Well, I think that everyone feels that they're in a disaster movie right now, it seems. Everyone, all all my friends, the kinds of things people are posting on social media, people certainly think they're in a movie like Independence Day uh, or Mm -hmm. Day After Tomorrow. I, I think whether or not this is translating into an acceptance that there is a clear climate change signal in this is another question. But the role of the climate crisis in these fires fire scientists aren't, aren't disputing or debating it they're clear about it there is uh, extreme dryness in vegetation across the west we've had erratic weather with those thunderstorms a couple of weeks ago and we have a landscape that owing to extensive uh, climate related tree mortality for one is simply primed to burn uh, and i think it's it's remarkable. I was just looking at the list of the, the top 20 largest California wildfires. And the top one is one that we had in 2018 in Mendocino. But the next three are all fires in uh, August 2020. Uh, wow. In August 2020. And and this is, you know, the top 20 uh, in, in recorded California history. So we're really uh, in a remarkable moment right now. And, I, and I've heard some scientists say that the extent of wildfire that we're seeing in the landscape uh, across the American West uh, it reminds them of what they saw in 1910, when there, were, when there were a series of iconic wildfires that really started our current era of, of the way we deal with wildfires, which is wildfire suppression. It really Jump-started that idea that we have to tamp down on fires because they're getting very dangerous for humans. And so people are saying, we're going we're back to that time now. So I think all, all the scientists that I've spoken to, or, or just watching them comment online, all they can say is something along the lines of, wow, this is incredible.
0: Let's walk through those steps in a little bit more detail that you just mentioned. You talked about dry vegetation. In August, we had this fire siege, um, which was prompted or, or, or sparked by what I have been what seeing described as a freak lightning storm. Mm-hmm. What, is it, what does it take? What are the steps that get us to the point of having fire sieges and now again another round of you know two dozen Mm. fires burning all across california
1: well as you mentioned um the previous round of fires that fire siege it was sparked when a a tropical storm that was decaying uh in the pacific it it cast off moisture in the direction of california and that moisture interacted with the, the dry air um over california and it prompted this series of of thousands and thousands of lightning strikes. And historically, lightning strikes, um, going back to prehistory, it it is a way that wildfires have started in California. And those kinds of lightning uh, ignited wildfires are really an integral part of California's landscape and have been for millennia. So it, it, in and of itself, a lightning-sparked wildfire is not uh, remarkable. But I think what was remarkable was that we saw these wildfires in all of the Bay Area counties except for San Francisco, which is entirely urbanized, and they grew very large very quickly. And that's a, that's a common thing that we're seeing in these fires now, the rate at which they are growing. There's currently a fire-burning just to the east, actually, of Paradise. It's burning near the town of Oroville, California. And that fire, virtually overnight, has grown up, has sparked from zero acres to 150,000 acres, which is actually larger uh, or about the same size as the campfire that destroyed Paradise itself. That's overnight. That's a remarkable rate of spread. If you look at satellite images, you can see it te- tearing along on its path towards Oroville. Um, you know, there was a similar fire uh, that threatened the town of Medford in Oregon and also raced down the i5 corridor. and at one point uh, you know the entire town of Medford was there was concerns that the entire town would have to be evacuated and those that appears to have been averted right now, but the, the speed at which these fires are moving is is helped by a, a wind event. Uh, that 's very common in in California in the West in the fall it 's a down it 's a, it's a down wind event when uh, essentially air rushes down from the Great Basin uh, over the Sierra Nevada and other mountain ranges. And these are the kinds of winds that are very, very dangerous for wildfires because they can spread them extremely quickly. Um, It's exactly the kind of fire as the campfire. It's the same kind of winds that sparked the Oakland fire in 1991. Much of the West uh, is enduring these kinds of wind events right now and just making the situation that much more dangerous.
0: So the wind propels the spread and mm-hmm. we're seeing that pattern, you know, carry on or repeat. We've also got the fuel issue, right? I mean, something is burning and it's not necessarily just forests. When we think of wildfires, a lot of people, I think, think of forests. But we've got all this vegetation that, that grows and then dries out and becomes fuel. And there's, is, if I understand correctly, there's a sort of pattern or cycle there as well, which is linked to climate change. Can you go into that a little bit?
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, so, so firstly, we, we have um, many, many dead trees on the landscape. Uh, mm. Over 100 million trees died in the, uh, in the drought in the 2010s. Mm. And the head of Cal Fi was recently pointing out that uh, the epicenter of some of these fires is precisely the area where tree mortality was greatest in the Sierra Nevada but another problem, as you mentioned, is the brush. Uh, it's not simply trees in, in, in and of itself. It, it's brush and undergrowth of grasses in the understory in California's chaparral regions. And the issue there is that for so long, we've been so good at suppressing, precisely suppressing wildfires in California. We put them out, obviously, because they endanger human life and property, that in lots of areas, this undergrowth has gotten really out of control. Uh, It's gotten too thick. It was said, for instance, in the 19th century, that uh, someone could ride a horse through a forest in the Sierra, and it wouldn't be snagged on either side by vegetation. Well, now that's no longer the case in many places. Vegetation is thick, there are young saplings everywhere. And so the fact that Uh, Weirdly enough, that we've been so good in many places at putting out fires means that this undergrowth has gotten out of control. And so that that also does uh, contribute to the the rapid spread of fire.
0: Can you weigh in at all on this conversation about... Um, forest management, which Mm -hmm. sort of continually comes up when we talk about wildfires in California. And and there seems to be a suggestion that California has not managed its forests well enough. And I was just earlier saying, you know, it's not just the forests, but like you say, there's a lot of dead trees. So there is, it sounds like some element of that.
1: Well, the issue, the issue with logging is that logging targets uh, the biggest trees, uh, the thickest trees. Um, And often when, People talk about forest management it's really it seems to me a bio a, 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 another word for logging essentially and um it is true that California's forests are thicker historically uh, than they were in the nineteenth century and before but it's also true that logging wouldn't necessarily help that because logging would target precisely those large most fire resistant trees in the forest. The reason that, for instance, uh, Native Americans, there was a tradition of setting prescribed burns was because they knew that low intensity fires wouldn't kill off the largest trees. It would simply burn the undergrowth, clear the landscape, make it easier to hunt there, would, would spur the regeneration of certain preferred plants. Um, but logging, you know, is at the opposite, opposite end of that. It targets the largest trees And there are even concerns that logging may make landscapes more prone to fire because it leaves a lot of slash on the ground, a lot of the byproducts Mm. of logging. It also leaves the the younger, uh, more slender trees that are themselves more susceptible to burning. So I don't think necessarily that the logging is the right answer. But I do agree that we do need to get better at forest management. And I think that may look a little bit like what Native Americans were doing in the 19th century and before, which is setting, for instance, prescribed burns, which are burns that are, uh, we we go out into the forest at a time when we are sure that the forest, uh, that that a fire won't burn out of control, it's possibly uh, after there's been some rain. And we set low intensity fires that helps to clear out this thick uh, undergrowth Um, which ensures that we won't have these very, very severe fires later on.
0: I want to talk about one more aspect of this, which is heat waves. From what I've read, it may not be so easy to directly link things like the lightning storms to climate change, although there's an argument to be made that extreme weather patterns have been attributed to climate change. But heat waves are are directly linked and have been, you know, looked at in in studies that show um, a a connection between climate change and heat waves. And those really, from what I understand, exacerbate the conditions for wildfires to burn really intensely Mm -hmm. because of how they dry out the fuel.
1: Am I getting that right? Yeah. the, The state's four warmest years on record, um, were all in the 2010s. Uh, you know, there was a stretch of 2014 to 2017 where we just saw record after record in terms of uh, in terms of uh, heat being broken, uh, temperature minimums in California. That is, the, the temperature lows are now 2.3 degrees Fahrenheit higher than they were a century ago. So we are certainly seeing uh, an increase in temperature in the state. And you're exactly right, though. The primary effect of that is to draw moisture out of fuels and turn them into kindling. Uh, another effect of heat is its effect on the Sierra snowpack. We see the snowpack, which mm. is essential for providing moisture throughout the summer months when it when it melts off. Uh, we see that receding earlier than it has done historically And that is also linked to to the hotter conditions.
0: One thing that just strikes me that seems to also be striking a lot of fire and climate scientists is just the sheer intensity of this and how it just constantly seems to get worse. I mean, Cal Fire says California has seen a nearly 2,000% increase in the acres burned compared to Mm -hmm. this time last year. And you talked with Neil LaRoe, an atmospheric scientist, who told you he was watching the fires with incredulity. Right. Why? Where where's the sense coming from that it just keeps God, it just keeps exceeding our expectations or predictions.
1: I think there was really a shift in the in the 2010s. I remember speaking with the former head of Cal Fire, uh, Ken Pimlot, and he began his role along with Jerry Brown in the early 2010s. And he said that he saw a shift to to what he described as as mega fires somewhere uh, in the middle of his tenure. And that was about the time that we started. We saw, for instance, a fire tornado in the town of Reading. We saw the campfire. We saw the largest fire in California, recorded California history, which was the Mendocino Complex fire um, up in Mendocino and other counties. And he said that there was there was a shift of which it seemed like we had just entered a new paradigm. And he, and he watched that shift. And I think that's the paradigm we're in now. And I think what's what's so scary about about the shift uh, is that it's easy to assume that we've entered the, a new normal now and that we maybe have some kind of sense of what these fires will be like. It's going to be like Reading. It'll be like Paradise. It'll be like the fires that we're encountering this year. But I remember another, something that's always stuck with me is some other fire scientists I spoke to said, this is not the new normal because that's assuming that the system has reached some kind of point of stability. And in fact, all we know right now is that the system is growing more and more unstable because of the way that we are altering the climate with carbon emissions. And so I think that's really the shift that we're seeing. We're seeing um, climate change have... uh, its signal is just getting stronger and stronger in these fires as as the planet grows warmer. And so I, I for me, that's the shift that we're seeing.
0: I mean, let's talk about the on-the-ground impact of that shift. It's one thing to, from a scientific, academic reporting perspective, to note, I mean, this is astounding, and it just mm-hmm. keeps getting more unstable, and it's on this trend. But the other thing that, that uh, stands out to me is how difficult it makes it to cope with it in a practical sense I mean you know we're seeing just like firefighting forces being totally overwhelmed yeah um and you know just the situation in paradise um I think in the book that you and Danny wrote and in an earlier piece this year you noted how well prepared actually paradise Uh was for the fires that it had known and that, that had been seen up to that point, but it could not possibly have been prepared as a town, as a community for what ended up happening.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. I, I think, <laughs> yes, it, it's chilling. I, I think what's so striking to me with, with the current fires as well, I've just been watching how many small communities and towns have been wiped out. How, they're much smaller than Paradise, but there's the community of Blue Ridge, Oregon, Big Creek, California, Berry Creek, California. These are all small communities that reporting suggests have been wiped out, or mostly wiped out, um, or substantially, you know, wiped out in the, in this current set of fires. So this trend of uh, fires invading suburbanized or or semi urban communities and and leveling them uh, is one that I, I don't think Paradise was the last one. And, and to the question of preparedness. I, I think what we often fail to remember living in California, which is such a, a beautiful, uh, naturally endowed, uh, you know, endowed with this forests and, and, and wonderful mountains. We tend to forget that fire is really integral to this landscape. Uh, we might even, it might even be good to think of fire as something like rain. It's not something that we can avert. It's something that's going to happen and we need to, Imagine that that the landscape, in fact, needs fire. Um, as one fire scientist put to me, fire is going to find a way in California because it's a landscape that's evolved with fire. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of preparing, I, I, I think it we have to be prepared to leave on a moment's notice. I think what we're seeing now with these current fires, that they move with such speed that we have to have a go bag, we have to maybe think about it. If you live in a dangerous area, you have to think about think about it. Perhaps as you would earthquakes, uh, have your documents in a bag, have uh, gear that you can survive with uh, ready, you know, ch- ready to be chucked in the trunk of your car. I, I think, as you say, it's just necessitating uh, a new way of thinking about the kinds of threats that we face living in uh, wild areas in California.
0: We'll get back to this conversation with Guardian editor Alistair G in just a moment. You've been listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. SFP would like to thank the awesome, forward-thinking, institutional supporters of the San Francisco Public Press, including the San Francisco Foundation, the James Irvine Foundation, the Reva and David Logan Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation, the Fund for Nonprofit News at the Miami Foundation, the Fund for Investigative Journalism, the California Endowment, the Center for Cultural Innovation, the Institute for Nonprofit News, and the local independent online news publishers. This is KSFPLP San Francisco 102.5 FM. Let's hear more from Alistair G. about the link between climate change and California's ever more destructive wildfires. You also wrote that climate messaging can imply that there's sort of a threshold that we will cross or that we can avoid crossing to avoid reaching a point of no return. I was reading in Technology Review that over the last four decades, higher temperatures and lower precipitation have already doubled the risk of extreme wildfire conditions in California in the fall. And unless we start cutting emissions significantly and soon, the odds could double again over the next Mm -hmm. decades. From the reporting that you've done on this, I mean, have we reached that point of no return? Are we there?
1: Well, I I, I think scientists would always say it's never too late. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think what's interesting is the way we, uh, understand what's happening around us. There's this there's this wonderful concept of shifting baselines and mm-hmm. it actually emerged from a fisheries scientist, uh, called Daniel Pauly. And he was observing the way that the oceans have really been degraded, uh, in the, in the last century. He was observing that if you asked a, a fisheries researcher, in 1900, who had been working in 1900 to look at the state of the oceans today, that person would just be dismayed uh, at what had happened. They 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 would see the degradation of a century. But if you asked uh, a fisheries researcher who was working today and whose career maybe began 20 years ago, that person would have uh, a, a much more diminished sense. They, they wouldn't quite understand perhaps how degraded the oceans were simply because they're. The the, the baseline that they had is simply, um, it's simply different. You know, they began working at a different time, fisheries records going back many years aren't that great. And so their sense of what has been lost perhaps wouldn't be as great as that person who had been working 100 years ago and could see what happened today. There's this risk that we simply may not recognize uh, the, the dangerous territory we're in and how much worse it's getting because we are simply growing used to it like the proverbial frog in the boiling water and daniel Pauly might say that our baselines have shifted um you know as, as we go along we're simply getting used to a degradation of the environment and we are failing to see uh that, that we are at risk of losing something and what we're at risk of losing is that that Mediterranean climate that persisted in California um, throughout the 20th century, uh, a time when fires were, we were substantially able to, to suppress them. And we may simply get used to this new state of affairs where fires are running out of control. Uh, and I find that concept of shifting baseline very helpful in thinking about the way we respond to climate change, because it, there may, it may seem like, oh, yes, there's going to be a dreadful drought at one point, and then we'll recognize that climate change is here. Climate change is already here. It's already influencing these fires. It's influencing a massive drought in the southwest. It's influencing a myriad, uh, a range of effects across the world. And yet there still persists doubt in many people's minds, uh Around what we're seeing, and 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 a, perhaps a, an unwillingness to recognize that the change is already here.
0: To illustrate that idea of shifting baselines, you use this example of the passenger pigeon. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah, the, the passenger pigeon was at one point thought to be the most abundant bird in North America, and it was said that in the nineteenth century. You would see flocks of them so enormous that they would blot out the sun. They would be so loud that you wouldn't be able to hold a conversation once they were flying over, flying overhead. And no one knows about the passenger pigeon today, and that's because it it went extinct, astonishingly. It was overhunted. It was its environment, its habitats were destroyed. And so in the 19th century, with these huge flocks of passenger pigeons probably seemed impossible to imagine a world in which they didn't exist because they were so abundant. And yet here we are today, we have no conception that there was once this, these flocks of birds so big, they blocked out the skies. Um, Our baselines have simply shifted. We simply grown up in a world where the passenger pigeon didn't didn't exist. Um, And we don't know How wonderful the thing is that we've lost. I think is the point. The idea is that our baselines have shifted. We our baseline now is no passenger pigeon. Um, We've lost the most abundant bird species in North America, and we don't mind it really because we never knew that it existed. That's the risk we'll we'll have kids growing up now in a world where these kinds of climate-inflected wildfires are normal, um, and they'll accept them. They'll accept this is simply normal. And the reality is that we've ruined the system we've broken the system by putting so much carbon in the air um and the fear is that because the baselines have shifted we'll simply forget that and we'll act as though this was always how it was and i think that would be a very sad and dangerous thing
0: yeah it's sort of a you can't miss what you've never had situation only on a Mm -hmm. cataclysmic scale yeah so I think maybe what I'm asking is the wrong question. It's not really a question of have we reached a point of no return. That seems kind of irrelevant because if our baselines have shifted so much that we don't know what to return to. The real question is what should we be doing? What can be done given the state that we're in right now, the point that we're at right now?
1: Well, it, it's the obvious one, which sounds very hard to achieve, but it's it's rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement it is cutting our carbon emissions. I don't. I'm not going to say it's the green new deal or any other particular solution. I think. I think we just need to do it whichever way we can. I think within California itself, I think uh, going back to a regime of prescribed burns, allowing some fires that don't threaten uh, human life or property to, to just burn their way uh, wherever they will, because that'll be better for environment. And I think it is also going to another level of preparedness. There was an excellent USA Today study from a year or two ago, looking at how many towns in California had emergency, had decent emergency evacuation plans. And in fact, towns like Paradise were in the minority for having such plans. So I think uh, Mm. emergency preparedness as well is, is another area that we can focus on.
0: That was Alistair G, an editor for The Guardian and co-author of Fire in Paradise. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is a production of the San Francisco Public Press, a nonprofit investigative news organization, sfpublicpress.org. Host and reporter, Laura
1: Wenis. Producer and contributor, Mel Baker. The publisher of the Public Press is Lila LaHood. Executive director, Michael Stoll. Director of Membership and Community, Daphne Magnawa. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Additional themes from the Blue Dot Sessions. Civic airs Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. on KSFP-LP San Francisco. Thanks for listening. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org.